My guest is Mike Farrell, who is known and loved all over the world for his work in MASH as B.J. Honeycutt. He's also appeared in the TV series Providence, and I understand you're looking forward to a new assignment with Desperate Housewives. <laughs> that came out wrong, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, yes, it may have. Uh, it's, uh, I'm not quite sure what the situation is going to be. I have been introduced uh, into the show as a character in what will be the last episode of this season, and there is... I guess, some possibility that the character will return next season, although there's nothing guaranteed about it. We'll look forward to that anyway. I didn't know that you worked in soap operas at the beginning of your career, Days of Our Lives. Yes, indeed. Uh, One of the things that's uh, most remarkable about about you is that you balance a busy career in acting with a lot of community activism and public activism, if that's a fair way to put that. And I just, one of the... uh, great memories I have of you was a few years ago during a sad situation at the execution in California of Stanley Williams, Tookie Williams. And you were very uh, vocal, very emotionally connected to the horror that was going on that night. How did you come to become such an opponent of the death penalty? Well, that's a uh, subject I deal with at some length in the book I've just released. Uh, uh, I don't know if you know about that. It's called Just Call Me Mike. Um, But the you know, the death penalty has been an issue that's been very much in the forefront of my concern for a long time, um, beginning, I suppose, in, well, I suppose beginning with the fact that I was raised as a Catholic and taught that thou shalt not kill. But beyond that, um, when I was in my uh, 20s, I was involved with a halfway house uh, organization that uh, uh, dealt with many people uh, uh, on a very intimate, personal basis with many people who come out of uh, prisons and uh, other kinds of institutions and people from different walks of life who've had problems in their lives. And, and I saw the capacity people have for transforming their lives into something meaningful and productive. And we went into uh, some of these, particularly the uh, prison institutions and jails, uh, to talk to people in there. And I was, I was really um, moved by the mindlessness and heartlessness and kind of mechanistic approach that these institutions take and how they really devalue and dehumanize people and was therefore even more impressed with the fact that some people come out of it um, with a willingness to try to better their lives in, in spite of uh, how degraded they've become. And then um, when I was doing MASH, a minister from the South came to me and said, you know, the death penalty has started up again in this country. It was, it was for those of you who don't know, it was uh, held unconstitutional in 1972 and reinstated in 1976 with certain safeguards built in that were supposed to protect the constitutional rights of everybody involved, and of course they don't. But at any rate, he uh, urged me to, because he knew I was opposed to the death penalty, I suppose I had signed a petition or something opposing it early on, uh, he um, asked me if I would help him uh, begin to spread the word about the 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 fact that this institution was once again uh, uh, reaping its uh, ugly rewards across the country. And uh, <clears throat> I did, and that got me involved in a number of cases, individual cases, as well as visiting a number of death rows and uh, it's just been uh, it's just been something that I think is really a blight on our society and something that I think does great harm to us, to those of us who are who are citizens in this country, and something I think we need to join the rest of the world in repudiating. For many of us, I think the closest we ever get to visiting death row would be watching Dead Man Walking and see, seeing Susan Sarandon, Sister Helen Prejean's book. Uh, what is that like, to actually go in and visit someone on death row? 
well, it's uh, it's a little hard to describe. It's it's um, in the first place, it's it's different. Every state that has a death penalty, and all states don't. Um, every state that has a death penalty has a different sort of take on death row. Some allow their inmates to, uh, uh, under certain circumstances, uh, congregate and to have uh, a bit of, uh, I suppose you'd call it leisure time, although it's hardly leisure. Uh, and others, uh, they're locked down for 23 or 24 hours a day with a short time out for a shower three times a week. So it depends on which death row you go into, but they're all horrible. They're all uh, really uh, stalls, styes, if you will, uh, places where human beings are, who have done in most instances terrible things, but nonetheless human beings who are, um, are being um, maintained uh, in the most primitive of circumstances and, and, and dehumanized in the process until they are led down that what they used to call last mile and executed. And it's, a, it's, it's, it's an incredibly difficult thing for any person, uh, you know, for me as a, as a free person to walk in and talk to some of these people and then walk, be able to walk out uh, when they cannot um, is, uh, is a very hard thing. And, you know, I've been in I've been in death row situations where the the prisoner was so trusted that he was allowed to walk around without a guard and have a private meeting with me in a in a room uh, where there was no uh, no uh, restraint on him uh, at all, and others where they insisted that people be manacled and uh, were uh, fearful that I was somehow in danger because I was there, and in fact they were probably more fearful of what I would say when I left than anything else. Um, so, uh, you know, what you, what you see, though, is, it, is what I've seen in different parts of the world under different circumstances, the kind of lowest of uh, behavior and the lowest treatment of uh, humanity and, uh, and uh, the kind of degradation that's attached to that. Last week on this program, we spoke with Robert Mirapol, who was the younger son of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who's yes, also written Robert. a book. Yeah, and he told me that the only memory he has of his parents is when he was five years old, visiting them on death row. Mm. And that, was, that kind of goes through you when you hear that from an adult sitting across the table from you. Uh, recently, there was a, an execution in Ohio, and there was a TV reporter, a young woman who witnessed the execution, who came out and said, well, he kind of just fell asleep. And she, to me, she almost sounded disappointed that it wasn't even more gruesome. And I'm wondering, I don't know this lady. She could be a, a wonderful person for all I know. But I'm wondering, ha- have we become so desensitized to human life that we needed to, to be gory and horrible? Well, that's an interesting observation and good question, and I think she probably should have the question posed to her. Mm. But the, the process uh, has changed over the years, as you know, from, uh, from firing squads and hanging, although some states still use firing squads, uh, hanging to uh, electrocution to gas chamber to now this lethal injection process. And the the primary concern, although they will tell you that they're trying to find a humane way to do it, everybody in his right mind understands that there's no, no humane way to kill somebody. Um, what they're trying to do is find a way to do it that is quick, uh, effective, and in theory at least, um, uh, not uh, offensive to the eye of the witnesses. We have a situation here in California now where death death penalty has been put in suspension because of a judge's examination of the 13 executions that have happened in this state since the death penalty has been reinstated. 
and the discovery that those people, in spite of the fact that they were paralyzed by one of the three chemicals that's used in this, in this lethal injection process, uh, in spite of the fact that they were paralyzed, suffered egregious, awful, horrible pain, and that that is anti-constitutional. Um, so what your reporter saw was somebody who had been injected with a paralytic drug as well as a, uh, uh, a or something that puts him to sleep, and then with the thing that, that uh, stops his heart. Uh, but if he was suffering terrible pain, it would have looked to her as though it was a quiet, peaceful situation in which he went to sleep. Uh, the judge here, as I said, found that uh, evidence suggested that these people were suffering and would, had they been able to, would have been screaming, um, which on some levels might please some people, but on another level is uh, another demonstration of the inhumanity of it all. My guest is actor and activist Mike Farrell. His website is mikefarrell.org, and he's the author of a new book called, called what? Tell me again. Because just, <laughs> just Call Me Mike. Tell me about the book. Well, it's, um, some call it a memoir. Some call it an autobiography. It's a story of my life, uh, both dealing with my young life, uh, my dreams of becoming an actor, my dreams of getting involved in uh, you know, becoming a man, I suppose, and uh, going through the service and having my eyes uh, opened uh, gradually to what the reality of life was in this country, um, achieving some of those dreams and achieving some um, prominence as an actor and at the same time becoming more and more involved as a citizen in various uh, aspects of, uh, of uh, this country of ours and its impact not only here and on the people here but its impact around the world. To those who say, well, he's an actor and very successful and he should stick with that and stop meddling and everything else, you say... I'm a citizen of the United States first, and when I became uh, successful as an actor, that didn't mean I turned in my credentials or responsibilities as a citizen. I understand you have two children. Uh, what world do you want us to leave them? Well, uh, I, want them, I want them to be left with a peaceful world, one in which we live up to the uh, aspirations of the founding fathers and mothers of this country that provides an opportunity that this nation become the beacon of hope that it once was for people instead of the bully that stomps around the world uh, invading other nations and stomping on people's uh, rights and hopes and liberties there. Um, and, you know, here in our own country that takes care of the young people and provides an education and provides health care and opportunity and allows people to realize the potential that with, is within them. You're a person everybody knows. Uh, I'm a person very few people know. How could I have my voice heard as well? It, it gets very difficult, and sometimes I think there's a lot of apathy that gets put on people because they find they can talk all they want, they can write letters all they want, but still they don't really have any sense of control. I think that's right. I think what's happened as a result of the kind of um, uh, money impact on politics, a lot of people feel that if they're not millionaires and or they're not famous, that they somehow don't make a difference. And that dehumanizes, uh, de I'm sorry, de, um, uh, disempowers people right. and, and makes them feel as though they don't make a difference, when in fact those letters do make a difference and their voices do make a difference. And your voice on this show and the a website in which you'll broadcast it make a difference because it lets people know that this still is a country that is uh, wherein the power lies with the people. And as long as we insist that on uh, not only recognizing the responsibilities inherent in that, but exercising that power, we won't allow it to be taken away by the uh, oligarchs and those people with wealth who insist that they can simply do whatever they want and uh, the rest of us should shut up and sit down.
Are you hopeful? Well, very much so. Uh, I find uh, any number of demonstrations everywhere I go that people matter, that people care, that people respond when you reach out. I find that, for example, the last uh, national uh, election, uh, the, the people of the United States stood up and said, we don't like the way things are going. We don't like this war in Iraq. We're not satisfied with the way this administration is leading us, and we want some change. And I think that's... Um, that's an, a very healthy demonstration of people suddenly realizing that uh, things aren't uh, being uh, done as they were told they were going to be done uh, by the leaders that they appointed. And as a result of that, they want some change. And lastly, where would you hope this country is in five years? In five years, I would hope that we are uh, out of Iraq, that we have, have, are using the money that we're wasting there uh, to heal the lives and bodies of those people who have been, who've had their lives and bodies ripped away and their, and their loved ones uh, in some way recompensed for that, that we have uh, installed in, uh, uh, helped institute a, a real uh, reformation of the society that we've destroyed in Iraq, that uh, we've re-established our bona fides in the international community and uh, helped uh, put the United Nations in the position of leadership that it should be. And here in the United States, using some of that money to uh, build up schools, uh, guarantee education for young people, stop the starvation in this country, provide health care for people that need it uh, that without uh, having to, to uh, rob their futures. Uh, you know, there are so many things that need to be done in, in our own country that it seems to me to be preposterous that we're out uh, telling people in other parts of the world how they should live their lives. Mike Farrell is the author of a new book called Call Me Mike. His website is mikefarrell.org. I thank you so much for your time and for visiting with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for the time. I'm Christopher Purdy. Thank you.